This episode is brought to you by McDonald's. Not sure you've heard of them. <laughs> Up and coming uh, little restaurant, but they're making it. They're the little engine that could. You know, the moment of bliss when you spot your fries being scooped into the carton and suddenly time slows down. I have that all the time. I love their fries. Oh, yeah. yes. McDonald's fries hit different when they're free. That's another thing I'll tell you. And when they belong to your friends, there's no better feeling than thinking you're out of fries and then you discover extra fries at the bottom of your bag or else my son still hasn't finished his fries yeah. and I'm done with mine. And uh, he used to be weaker than me so I could just take them. Yeah. Now I can't because he's stronger than me. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no wrong way to eat McDonald's fries, but we all think our way is the best way. And I like stealing them from someone else. That's my favorite <laughs> way. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. McDonald's, check them out sometime. They're everywhere. Robert Half research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. I didn't know that. I didn't either. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. Interesting. Mm. That's why you need Robert Half. Yep. I don't think that's a person. That's the company. Okay, I was yeah. confused. Yeah, their specialized recruiting professionals engage with their proprietary AI. Welcome to connect businesses <laughs> of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing, and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. See, at Robert Half, they know talent. I wish I had had Robert Half back in the day oh, when I was hiring. Okay. So, no offense, Sona. Oh, it, it, I feel like you did mean to offend me. Yes, you wouldn't be here if I had had Robert Half. Okay. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, my name is Stephen Merchant, and I feel overqualified about being Conan O'Brien's friend. <laughs> you know, I'd have to agree with you. Thanks very much. I, I seriously would yeah. have to agree with you. <laughs> Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell. Shoes, walking blues, climb the fence, books and pens. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Yes, I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Hello there, and welcome to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend uh, podcast. That uh, well, I, I think we keep hitting new heights. Yeah. Oh. I, if I do say so myself. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Each <laughs> lows. <laughs> well, lows are heights if you look at them upside down. Uh, what? Um, but I'm joined as always by Son of Sessian and uh, Matt Gorley, and I'm going to start this episode with a complaint. Something that's been rankling me a little bit lately. Oh which is icy drinks. Ugh. Now we do a podcast uh -huh. and we work with these very uh, sensitive microphones. I don't know when this is going to be airing, but- It won't. Oh, this will air. <laughs> <Not> a, <laughs> this will see the light of day. I will be heard. I, uh, I was talking to, we'll just knock it off. I was talking to uh, a comedy icon, uh, someone who I really adore. And I was looking forward to this interview. And throughout the interview, you were the worst offender, Matt. You kept, you have what looks to be an, an iced, it's like a pink drink. What it's, is it? It's a uh, unsweetened passion tree. Yeah, passion right. tea. But it's mostly ice. And I'd be talking to this person, and yeah. she'd be saying something really emotional, like, "Yeah, I went through this really tough time." And then I'd hear, "Here, do it, Sona." And then I'd hear this. I'd hear that in the background. And I'd look over, and you're taking a big old gulp. I saw you look at me. 
Oh, I looked at you several times and it didn't stop you. <laughs> well, I couldn't tell if you were just looking to see what that was or you're trying to send me a signal. So I have a request. I know plastic straws are out. Yeah. Um, we don't want to be killing any dolphins with plastic straws, but I will pay for you two to get uh, metallic straws of your choice. Oh, um, This is a tough thing for me. Because when you say something bugs you, I just want to do it more. Yeah. I know, but- And I, I know you have a legitimate let complaint. Let me see this. This is literally, we do a lot of- we do a lot of jokes and a lot of fun stories on this podcast. That's really nice. But sometimes you're talking to somebody and it gets real and they start talking about something. They start talking about something like, yeah, it was really rough for me because, um, you know, I remember I'm like, um, I was really close to my grandfather. And I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then one day I went to his room and I-, <laughs> I He's doing uh, the laundry. I just, and I'm like, what? I'm like, grandfather- and I'm having trouble even understanding what they're saying, and I'm so distracted. Put a goddamn straw in the drink. Can I say you something? You work in, in audio. My, I, in my defense, I waited until that guest drank her own iced coffee before, and I felt I like- I cannot control the guest. Okay. If a but, guest shows up and has an iced coffee, there's little I can do. I think it might be a smart idea. And I, I think you're the behind the scenes whiz putting this whole thing together, Matt. So if you maybe had thought to have some straws here and supply the guests with the straws so they at least have the option, but I can't control them. You, I can control. I didn't know there were going to be drinks. I didn't even ask for a drink. It was nice enough to David to bring one in the first place. I David brought this yes. in? Yes. Yeah. David, get in here. David, this is David Hopping <laughs> because we all know Sona needs an assistant to do the work she's not doing. How dare yes. you? Uh, David, have a seat right here, and if you will. That is true. Is uh, Mike, this mic on? He's not. He's not. Oh, Sam! Our, our engineer ran away. <laughs> He's printing your ads. Oh, you actually, to he told me to say this. <laughs> okay, that's great. David, You, no one asked you for icy drinks and you supplied them? Well, the guest that was on requested a drink. Right, and then you saw it. I'll just get... Um, I'll just get Well, this Matt. is what Matt got uh, Wednesday, so I thought he might want it again. I'm not throwing you under the bus, David. That was oh, no, 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 no. You made it quite... Gesture. You made it quite and clear. I always, call, I always call you. I say, do you want any Starbucks? Then I call Sona. And then I didn't have your number in my phone, but I just got you on. Yeah, well, I have had his number for a long time, and I know what he's up to. He's up to, it's called pulling focus in show business. (laughs) Matt wants to make it about himself in some small way, and you saw me really vibing with a guest. (laughs) We had it, we were in the groove. It was going to be, this is probably the interview that's going to get me a Peabody Award, and you couldn't handle it, could you, Matt? So you I could handle it. It was probably no big deal. I mean, Literally, it sounds like three lab skeletons falling down a flight of steps. I don't want to make excuses, but this is literally my 10th podcast this week, and I'm a bit fried. So get off my back, the man. Yeah. You know what? Uh, Adam brought something up. Slash, he said Slash was doing it during his interview. Yes. He's Slash. And you called him out on it. And how fucking dare you <laughs> call out Slash on anything? First of all, I don't care who it is. Oh, no, 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 no. There no, are no, I lines. don't care who it is. And I, I I adore Slash. I adore Slash. And um, check out that episode. It's a really good one. 
Um, but You're pl- <laughs> plugging this podcast. On this podcast. On this <laughs> They're already no. listening. You got them. There was so much ice rattling. It, it really did sound It really did sound like the Titanic had just hit the bird. There was ice exploding all over the place. And so oh the reason I called you in, David, uh-huh. is because what you basically did was you weaponized the podcast. You brought- um, Weaponized or brought joy? Yeah. Dro- brought joy. This brought is joy. delicious. It's actually really good. We had never had it. We had it because Matt got it the other day. And Thank it you. Good. Thank you. Maybe you should just try the drink and then we can all have noisy ice drinks on. No, thanks. <laughs> I'm good. Okay. <laughs> and also, um, I live off hate. I have a yeah, vast reserve right. of hate yeah, inside my true. body yeah. and I draw on it at any time. I could not eat food and live for a thousand years. That hydrates you. You don't need beverages. It does everything. It hydrates. It provides caloric energy. Um, yeah, just and it's. I'm talking about just about six years from 1972 to 1978. I can live off that hate. Good. So it's um, healthy. It, you know what? It's done fine by me. Oh, has okay, it? Okay. And I'll tell you something else, David. What? You are not to bring them. Okay. You're not to bring them icy drinks anymore. What if we get a straw? Thinking they have it. All right, but I don't want to hear like. Matt Gorley. I do not want to hear ice rattling around. And don't tell me you saw me looking at you, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, and what was what was that glare like? Like I said, I th- I think it was like, oh, is he just just hearing the noise and looking over to see what the noise is? But then it was just a fraction of a second long enough to go, oh no, he hates me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's why I hold for that fraction of an extra second. Yeah. There's a lot of thought that goes into my deadly glares. Yeah. But it didn't change your behavior, I noticed. You kept slurping and a slurping. Well, I wanted to give you the benefit of the doubt. Well, you, you were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just as petty as you thought I was. <gasps> there is uh, no more ice. No okay. more rattling ice on this show. I'm shutting it down. Okay. Okay, mm-hmm. Hopping? Next time they want something to drink, get them some maple syrup and a paper cup. <laughs> oh, my God. Caesar has spoken. All right, my guest today is a hilarious writer, actor, and comedian who co-created The Office alongside Ricky Gervais. You also know him from such shows and movies as Extras, Hello Ladies, Jojo Rabbit, and Logan. Now he has a new series, The Outlaws, which he wrote, directed, and stars in. Episodes are available on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, I am very excited he's with us. Stephen Merchant, welcome. I'm here because I'm an enormous fan of of uh, you. Oh, oh, that's so nice. Yeah, absolutely, that's so nice. Yeah. Okay, well, well you completely... chiefly your work on The Simpsons. Oh, for Christ's sake! Uh, yeah. You know, it's so... the other stuff I'm not aware of. You know, <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I do. I've encountered people. I've encountered people on the street that be like, "Oh my God!" When you were working for The Simpsons, I just, man, that show was firing on all cylinders. I love you. I love that stuff in The Simpsons. And then they sort of trail off, like, <laughs> don't know what became of you after that. Right. Yes, exactly. It, I'm not kidding. They really don't seem to know that there's been. They think, "Oh yes, I. You've been dabbling in this other stuff." But yeah. when are you getting back to The Simpsons? The other one, the, the other one, kind of damned with faint praise is, uh, "Hey, are you Stephen Merchant? I am. Oh yeah, my wife's a big fan." Oh, oh God. <laughs> oh, she is? Oh, okay, good. Is she here? No, right. Yeah. So why are you not a fan? Yeah. I had the other day the, the flip of that, which, well, not quite the flip, but someone came up to me and said, oh my God, I'd love to get a, a picture with you because my wife's such a fan. And I was like, sure. And I took the picture and he went, yeah, such a fan. And I texted you about this and you yeah. said, he said, me not so much. 
And I thought, <laughs> why? Okay, I'm, I'm not some uh, maniac who expects everybody to enjoy what I do, but why throw that in? Of course, that's what's why? so odd. Is it because they don't see you as quite a human being? You're you're this other thing, right? You're a personality. You're a show business Yes, there's many reasons. So, now, first of all, it could just be that he's, I mean, he, he's being He's got on. good taste. He's got good taste. He's got good taste. Yeah. <laughs> he's got impeccable taste in comedy. Yeah. He went out of his way to say, now, Stephen Merchant, he chooses his, <laughs> his words more carefully than you. He's less needy as a comedian. And I, uh, I said, oh, I'm going to be talking to Stephen in a few days. And he said, now that's someone I look up to. <laughs> so. Um, I remember years ago when Ricky, I was working with Ricky Jason. He first got very famous in the UK. And, you know, we would work and we had an office and we would go for lunch. And on the way back, you know, he'd get stopped once or twice for photos, you know, yep. kind of always very gracious and did photos with them. And one time uh, we, were, we were walking back and we were kind of a bit hurried. We had a, a meeting or something. And um, to a, a sort of a couple of tourists came up and they said, oh, excuse us, um, can we get, their English wasn't great. So they said, uh, can we get picture? Can we get picture? And, and, we, and Ricky was like, yeah, sure. And he put his arms around them and they said, uh, no, can you take picture of us? <laughs> he went, oh, right. And he did, yeah. had no idea who he was until he just had to awkwardly take the camera well, back and just take a photo of these. That's guys. one of those things. There's an analogous situation to that, uh, which is I've had someone come up to me at a restaurant with a pen and I say, and who do I make this out to? Meaning to Martha, to, and they're like, it's the check. <laughs> <laughs> I love it because you just, you shrink yeah. instantly to one one thousandth your size. The pen stays the same size. So you're a tiny little person That's with right. a massive pen. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I was back in my hometown of Bristol and I was, again, in that thing where you, you know, again, in Bristol where I'm from, you know, I'm fairly well known because it's like local boy made good. The same sort of thing. A few people had said hi on, on, on the day. Went in a store, uh, came out, guy came running out. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. I went, sure. Where, what do you want me to sign? He went, no, you you left your credit card. <laughs> oh, yep. Okay. Yep. Trump. Okay. You probably want to tell me that I'm your favorite. <laughs> That's right. No, not at all. Um, anyway, these are such relatable stories to start the show with, aren't Do they? you ever go to buy a Porsche? And this is something, if you're listening, we all been there, right? And you know you have a choice between the mahogany trim. <laughs> it's easy how quickly a little taste of a glamorous world or an exclusive world, how quickly you acclimatize to that. Because I... Uh, I've been lucky. I'm not going to boast, but I, you know, I made a little money over the years. And I flew my parents from England to LA business class. Not first, you know, come on. No, but I'm not made of money, but business class. And, and my mother, she got to the house and I said, how was the flight? And she said, it was wonderful. We, 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 we got off the plane before all the ordinary people. <laughs> She'd never been on a business class flight in her life. And suddenly they were the ordinary people. Yes. It's like amazing how quickly your head is turned. I love that you are trying to come across as a guy who still understands what it's like outside the bubble. I'd like to tell people that you drove up in two Bentleys. <laughs> two That's Bentleys, what, one, and which I don't even I, know how I have you did it. One for me and one for my iPhone. Yes, yes. And <laughs> because of your height, you were able to straddle both of yep. them. You were working the the wheels of both at the same time. It looked like it was very unpleasant to drive two Bentleys at once. I once heard a story. I wish I would love to know if it's true that supposedly Bono 
was, you know, touring. He was like in Madrid doing a show and his favorite hat hadn't come. It had been forgotten. And he had it flown uh, in a business class seat to Madrid. <laughs> Just the idea of like of like a chaperone and Bono's hat in a chair. Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but I, I love that image. I would love it also if they gave the hat one of the exits where you need to know how to <laughs> use the emergency. And, and, and the, the woman says, are you happy to do this in the event of an emergency? And because the hat didn't say anything, she took that as a yes. That's right. And then the plane had some difficulty people had to get out and the hat was just sitting there. That's right. Everyone choked on the smoke. Yeah. Uh, Someone, a, a stewardess, threw it down the slide. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, well, I have been uh, really looking forward to talking to you because we've crossed paths uh, many times and um, your friend, Ricky Gervais, our mutual friend, uh, but I think he really likes you. Uh, <laughs> I think he respects you. Um, but he brought up this image once. He said, my favorite thing in the world would be to see, I think he said this on air. He said, I want to see you and Stephen Merchant fight. Yeah. And uh, he said, it'd be like two praying mantises. That's right. And I thought, <laughs> because um, now I'm considered quite tall uh, as comedians go. I'm 6'4", and if there's some product in my hair, 6'6", uh, you are six seven. I remember being six four, Conan. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that was, probably. And then you turned. I was around seven. thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> but it is a very, in all seriousness, it's very odd because I have. When I walk into a room, I've been most people's height at one time or another. Yes. I've been your height, oh. probably most of the people in the studio's height. I've been, I've been through there and, on, and carried on going. Yeah. And I would say and I speak with confidence here, I think 6'4 is the optimum height for a man. I think it's a great height. I think it's a masculine height. I think the problem is you can still buy clothes off the peg. You can still get shoes to fit. Once you get to 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, now you're getting silly. Yeah. There's not, furniture doesn't fit. You can't get into cars. Yes, you can't I get agree into places. And 6'7 is absurd. I, it's I, a nonsense. It makes life miserable. No, and- no, you have to have furniture specially built. Specially built. You, you probably, uh, like your home, everything is specially designed. I know you have a, you've, and this is well known about you, special toilets have been made for you. Special, very high <laughs> toilets that other people can't fit on. Yeah. Unless they have a small step ladder. Yeah. Um, and yes, and it's an absolute pain. And, and, it's a, and, and everything in your life is slightly you know, seen through the, am I going to fit? Am I going to, you know, beds in hotels, very rarely long enough. Your door frames are about six foot four or five. No, probably the six, six, I think is the standard door frame height. Again, too, too uh, low for me. And the one I particularly notice in America, and it's not so pronounced in, in, uh, in England, but for some reason here, toilet stalls, bathroom stalls are not quite tall enough, particularly in airports. I find if I walk into a bathroom stall, I can see into the bathroom stalls either side. Well, and guess what? Of they- the one, and I just, and of course you just glance and there's a guy just looking back at you, but, sitting on the toilet. But Stephen, they don't know. <laughs> also, here's the thing. They don't know that you're six, seven. Right. They think that you're on tippy toes trying, right. to trying, trying, trying to have a look-see. But the problem is that, that what happens is because I'm aware of that, I then have to sort of enter a toilet stall, sort of a crouch. I sort of creep my way in. Right, <laughs> like, like, really, which looks really weird and no, no, menacing. No, no. I, I was, I was going to bring this up much later in the interview, but people know of you in, in the states, <laughs> particularly uh, in airports. Yeah, yeah, you're called Luxy Merchant. Uh, people know that you like to have a little Luxy over the top of the toilet stall. It's very, very difficult. Check out what's happening, <clears throat> and it's hurt you. It's hurt you in this country. <laughs> 
It's <laughs> you've exactly. done fine, but think of no, the words out. You uh, Sona, true or false? Today you said, "Oh, is Luxy coming in?" I did. Yeah, it's Luxy. It's Luxy Merchant. Yeah, yeah. And I said, "Let's not bring that up till it probably won't come up at all." But if it does come up, I'll bring it up later. Yeah, there's a reason I didn't come into the studio. <laughs> That's right. You've been Matt. You were. You're even, uh, you were excited until you, uh, to be here in person. And then you yeah. found out that old Luxy Merchant would be here. <laughs> I, hope I really hope people don't listen to this show because oh, trust that's, that's going to hang around. No now, one will. It? No one will. You'll never hear of this again. Luxy! Luxy! Uh, yeah, hi yeah, there. Yeah, that's yeah. me. You're a pervert! <laughs> okay. You took it a little too far. <laughs> Fuck you! That's the natural progression. Um, no, I, uh, I've been very excited to talk to you because uh, we both got into comedy. I've always seen you as kind of a kindred spirit. I hope uh, I hope you feel the same way about me, but um, I'm a big fan of yours. You have a great mind, and I love your comedic persona. You seem to thrive uh, in discomfort, which is something mm-hmm. I, it's that area that I just love, I've always loved in comedy. And I know that we have some things in common. My, uh, first of all, our relationships with our bodies. Um, I've always, I always found my body to be absurd. Yes. And, uh, and that helped me in comedy. It gave me a, a head start. Yep. There were a couple of people I saw on television. One was Dick Van Dyke in reruns of the Dick Van Dyke show. And then the other, of course, uh, when, when the Pythons were rerun in America and I discovered John Cleese, I saw this guy that was very funny with his tall body yeah, and almost kind of owned it in a way that was intriguing to me. And I think you had a similar experience. Very similar. I mean, Cleese actually grew up in a place called Western Supermare that's not far from my hometown of Bristol. And then he went to college in Bristol. So for some reason, I always felt a kind of affinity because he seemed like a local guy, done well. Like you say, very tall. <clears throat> and I was very influenced by him. And for some reason, believed that I, one day I could be John Cleese. I don't know where that presumption came from. I thought, well, he's a tall guy <laughs> from the neighborhood. Is that, If that's what they want on TV, I guess I could do that. Yeah. But he, and I would study that that physicality and there, there was this precision to the way he yes. used his body. It was very exact. I think a lot of those great physical comics, Oliver Hardy has it as well. There's an exactness to wait. Like when Oliver Hardy's ringing a doorbell, he'll sort of flip his hat into his arm and then flourish with the finger as he buzzes the buzzer. And it's all so precise and yes. elegant and dedicated. And I just, I just was very inspired by that. And like you say, use what's inherently comic about you, the things which people already find funny. And someone said to me once, do you think you went into comedy to control when people laugh at you? And there may be some truth in that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I I never, I've thought about this a lot. I used to think of it as I'll make fun of myself before they get a chance to make fun of me. That's a very British thing indeed, yeah. Particularly, uh, but also it's interesting, for instance, you know, it extends to kind of career success, right? So when The Office first happened, the UK version, and Ricky and I sort of got well-known, there were lots of plaudits because it was kind of, where did these guys come from? You know, they were sort of new kids on the block and and, and we got a lot of uh, sort of plaudits. And then as time went on and we became more and more familiar, then it was like, it seems like it's overrated, that show. These guys, and then when it went to America, it was like, we prefer the American version. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's sort of, and I think what happens, and you see it with a lot of people, is eventually you, so Elton John had that. So through the 80s, he was kind of lambasted. And then at some point, you become a national treasure if you live long enough. Yes. So this is what I'm hoping for next. Is to no, be no, no, no. You've got, treasure. if you just, I mean, trust me, I'm trying for that too, but I'm told I need to live to be 150. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I need to be the same age as someone who fought in the Civil War <laughs> yes. um, to be a national treasure. But uh, there's this thing that happens. You guys, 
guys will do two years of a show and then decide that's enough. Well, and that's because of the economics. Yes, of course. yes. There's no money in, in syndication. There is no such thing. <clears throat> right. So why are you going to make 150 episodes of something? It's crazy. Right. But Faulty Towers, how many Faulty Towers are there? 12. There are 12. Yeah. And they're perfect. Yep. You know, the American style for many, many years, and I think it's starting to change. I think Netflix and, and the way streaming works now is starting to change it. But we, um, if something works in this country, it, the mandate was grind that thing <laughs> until it's completely no longer funny and then do another 10 years. <laughs> that's right, exactly. And that's what we, that was our system. So I was always looking at your shows. And I'm, when I say your, I mean UK shows and, and thinking that you were the superior minds and that you had more integrity than we had. I didn't realize there was just no money just in no it. Just no money in it. Just what's the point? You yeah. know, you just, you burn out. There's only two of you. You can't afford a writer's room. So it's like, why am I doing this again? Why am I, you know, do something else? Also, I think with the case, in the case of The Office, we did about uh, 14 episodes in total. And I think we thought, well, we've cracked TV writing. Turns out this is the first thing we've done. And look at it. You know, we thought, yeah, we can just keep repeating this success forever. Turns out it's way harder than you think. That idea of don't quit a hit, I think I would cling on to now with dear life. Yeah. So it sort of looks like it was a you know, great integrity. It's just a terrible, foolish mistake. And if only we'd just kept on grinding that out. Oh, then I'd have three Bentleys. <laughs> so now, where else can you go surfing and skiing the same day, huh? I don't know. Or check out a world-class art museum and then camp at a dark sky sanctuary that night, huh? Uh, yeah. Yeah, where else can you hike through Redwoods and then get a luxury spa treatment? Where? Well, you live there, California. <laughs> California, Sona. No matter where California. you go across the state, you'll find a way to play. I'm a California resident. So are you. Sona, you are a lifelong California resident. I'm a lifer. I love this place. This is a beautiful state. Gorgeous. So many different, wonderful ecosystems in one state. You can hang out by a Palm Springs pool. You know, you can go whale watching, you can go hiking in Yosemite, and then uh, talk about the great cities in California. You get all this amazing food, sushi, whatever you want, they got it in California. Hey, if you can't find it in California, man, you got a problem. Yeah. I shouldn't have done that. I made that up on my own. Anyway, I love California. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. Brian Needs a Friend is sponsored by ADT, introducing ADT Self Setup, featuring everything from motion sensors to Google Nest Cam and the Nest Doorbell with a battery or wired option. Your choice. Easily install the ADT Self Setup security system at your convenience. You don't need heavy-duty tools. And if you do need help, ADT can provide virtual assistance along the way. Self Setup from ADT grows, moves, and adapts as your needs change. You can add more products at any time, and your system easily moves wherever life takes you. It also features Nest Cams that can tell the difference between a person, an animal, a vehicle, or with the Nest Doorbell, even a package. These things are getting so smart. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. You can view video of an alarm event and verify or cancel an alarm with just one quick tap. Now everyone can get trusted security from ADT installed your way with no long-term contracts. When the most trusted name in home security as the intelligence of Google, well, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google, Nest Cam, Nest Doorbell, and Nest Aware are all trademarks of Google LLC. Mm-hmm. 
Is your money just sitting around being lazy? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I don't like Get that. Get a job, money. No, that's not what I oh. meant. But in a way, it is what I meant. Okay. That's a good point, Sona. You have hard-earned cash, and it should always be working towards a better financial future for you. Your money shouldn't be sitting around, you know, watching reruns on TV and eating nachos. It should be working <laughs> for you. Well, guess what? Robinhood pioneered commission-free stock trading over a decade ago. They continue to offer innovative products to help you maximize your money's potential. That's good. You got to have that money working for you, man. Yeah. With over 23 million funded customers, Robinhood is helping people build a better financial future. With Robinhood, it's simple to make investments towards your future goals, whatever those may be. We all have some bucket list items to cross off, and Robinhood has tools to help you pursue them. Investing a small amount now could make a big difference 30 years down the road. That's good. Isn't that a nice thing? Give yourself 30 years from now a gift of what you do now. <laughs> it's nice to be in the driver's seat and have autonomy when making investments, which is easy to do with Robinhood. Take your financial future by the reins. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. Investing involves risk and loss principle is possible. Remember that? Other fees may apply. Returns are not guaranteed. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker-dealer. My former writing partner, Greg Daniels, yep. we got our start together and worked together for many years and we're still close friends. And so I remember being worried for him because he told me the 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 British office is done, but I'm going to try and make an American version. And I was worried for him. I didn't think it could be done. I didn't want my good friend yeah. getting disappointed, having a hard time. And um, good God, I mean, <laughs> wow. that, that thing, uh, it was brilliantly done and brilliantly cast. But- Thank uh, God he didn't listen to you. I know, well, trust me. Because <laughs> yeah. otherwise, I mean, I would just, I mean, I'd, I would, I'd be just scrapping around doing stand-up in like pubs instead of just swanning around with, with celebrity I am, friends. I am not swimming I am pools. not, I am not kidding. I am not kidding. Someone could fill a book with, so thank God you didn't listen to Conan. <laughs> because I'm not even kidding. There have been about five or six times in my life when I've given people advice, which was, you know, like to Mike Myers, when he he pitched me <laughs> Wayne's World first. Really? I've talked about this before. He was brand new at Saturday Night Live. And he was like, yeah, I've got this thing. And it's the guys doing cable access in the basement. And I said, you know, Cable access, low rent version of a TV parody. That's kind of been done. <laughs> yeah. And I thought I talked him out of it. And then he went and he submitted it to read through anyway. And I was like, well, this kid's about to get his comeuppance. <laughs> oh my God. Because I'm the guy who knows it all. Well, I think smartly, the one thing I, I like you, you know, grew up watching a lot of TV and, and there was a number of attempts to make British shows, including Faulty Towers, into American shows. And they'd often failed. And one of the things which seemed a recurring problem was the original Brits had tried to do the adaptation. Mm -hmm. And my advice to Ricky, I remember thinking, was we should not try and do this ourselves. We don't quite understand America in its DNA, yes. even though we think we do because we've grown up watching American stuff. And it needs an American showrunner to adapt it. And we met with a lot of people, but Greg was the one who, the only one I think who seemed to spot that it was really a romance. Yeah. At the core of it, it was a romantic comedy that also had this funny boss character. Yes. And I think he spotted that that, that, ero that romance at the core of it between Jim and Pam was what was going to keep people, people, people coming back uh, week to week. To and, be, and, to and be fair, right Greg is always saying everything's a romance. <laughs> 
he, was, he just happened to be right in that meeting. But he and I once had to do a rewrite on a Godzilla versus Mothra uh, 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 creature battle. And, and he became said, you know, Godzilla hearts Mothra. Yeah, yeah. He kept saying, it's a, it's a romance. Godzilla loves Mothra and Mothra loves Godzilla. Um, uh, you know, clearly, and and- this is one question that I had for you because I think you're one of the few people that could answer it. You came from this British comedy writing and performing tradition, and you create, uh, along with with Ricky, this this uh, terrific uh, masterpiece of of British television. But you participated a lot in the American Office. Well, I wish I could take more credit. No, I, I would Weren't show you up, in the writer's room? I would show up occasionally in the writer's room, but I mean, they they were more than, they didn't need me there. I think I just went there because I enjoyed it because it had been me, me and Ricky in a kind of drafty North London office and we would come to Glamorous LA and I would sit in there with Greg and, you know, 12 brilliant people watching ideas bubble up. And it was a very exhilarating for me to see that kind of, and I mean this, I mean this compliment in a complimentary way, like a factory of great yeah. comedy TV. It's 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 unique to, to well, this country. That's, that's my, that's what I wanted to talk to you about a little bit is that your experience on The Office was just you and Ricky alone, and it can be kind of feel monastic. Yeah. And this is when I got into writer's rooms, real writer's rooms, whether it was on Saturday Night Live or The Simpsons, and then my own writer's room, I just wanted to live there. I loved being in a writer's room. And there's something about getting a bunch of people together uh, coming up mostly with ideas that could never be on television. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And saying things that should never be repeated, but it was just this wonderful world. There's an exhilaration to that that is hard to replicate anywhere else. I, I have to say one of the things that I think it has changed the way people watch and experience comedy, the concept of it being a, a documentary, you know, and that we're we're just observing these people, but they they can talk to camera but that there's no laugh track. And I think for so long in the United States, I don't know much about the British tradition, but there was a laugh track on all comedy. Well, do you know, there's there's a show that's a big influence on me, which is MASH. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, in, in England, when the TV show MASH was aired, it did not air with a laugh track. Hmm. So when I would come to the US, I would see it with reruns and there'd be this laughter, but like it seems to be shot like in a Korean military hospital, but there's like this audience and it's very surreal. Whereas in the British version, for some reason, it had no laugh track. So that show, you're talking about Arthur Miller, it felt like a sort of dark kind of existential comedy in which these men were making jokes in the face of war and death. And it was the only way they could deal with the horror. It was a really sort of powerful mm-hmm. comedy drama. And then you see it with laughter and Hawkeye's insufferable. It's like, I want to go shut the fuck up, man. Just do your medical work. Stop trying to make quips. You know, and it's, but without that, when there was no audience, he's just, he was firing them off into the ether. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's interesting, isn't it, how it how it changes your your interpretation of that of that for me at least for that show. Well, you know, it's, uh, what I will tell you is that the there was a concession made on that show that was very specific, laugh track uh, everywhere except in the operating room. Right. right so right. there was no laugh track in the operating room, and that was one of the um, concessions they made, but. Uh, you know, to to try and show that the sanctity of that space, I I believe that an entire generation or more than one generation now, because the original British office is two thousand one, and it's I I do think 
now there's an entire generation that watches reality TV and there's no laugh track. There's right. no, they decide and they, they look at reaction shots and they see the way things unfold and they see discomfort and they're quite happy deciding for themselves what's funny. But it's funny how it does take people, I think, getting primed you know, initially at least, to know what to expect. Because I remember when the original British version of The Office aired, obviously I wasn't in the show, so people didn't recognize me. So I was on a train, the first pilot episode had aired on the BBC, and I was on a train and there were two women talking opposite me. And one said to her friend, hey, did you see that documentary last night on the BBC about an office? The boss was absolutely hysterical. (laughs) And her friend said, oh no, I think that was a sitcom. And the first lady said, oh, well, it wasn't very funny then. <laughs> so, what? And isn't it interesting that sort of she was pride, she didn't know what it was. Right. And, and it was hilarious. When she was told it was a comedy, oh, no, 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 not funny then. And it's interesting sort of, so I wonder if it's like, I don't know whether people, like you say, they're conditioned now to see shows without a laugh track. And so they, I think they accept are. them. You know, I whereas think, initially, I think they were probably a bit, it was a bit odd. No, I think um, we used to watch, I mean, I grew up, on shows like Happy Days. Right. And on Happy Days, which is, you know, it's a comedy and it was a huge hit, but the Fonz would enter. Round of applause. And he had to hold yeah. until the applause was done. And sometimes it was important that he walk in the door and say, Richie, don't do it. That man's about to shoot you. Yes. I don't think that was a plot. But anyway, let's just say, but but if but if the Fonz would come in and 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 this, you know, he has to save Richie's life, Richie Cunningham's life, he has to stand yes. there. <laughs> That's for right. like sometimes two minutes while people applaud, start to say his line, Richie, but then hold some more. Yeah. And you think about it and that's, what are we watching? Like a Victorian comedy in a music <laughs> hall? Like but, what, why? Well, why? except that it's also though, again, you know, again, big influences on on The Office and, and me more generally were included uh, Roseanne. Yep. Which the I watched the original pilot of Roseanne again recently and it's brilliant. And again, it has some of that laughing in the face of desperation, a kind of yeah. working class woman trying to, you know, yep. keep her family afloat. And it has a laugh track, but I don't know why. I just, I, it, I almost zone it out. I'm just so engaged by the world, the characters. I think Cheers is the same. You know, it was so, it was classy and it felt characterful. It felt like a rich universe. So I don't know where at some point, like you say, it, it mm-hmm. became unfashionable. Uh, I want to make sure I mention extras because that's when you show up on camera. Mm. Uh, in the show Extras, which I loved. Uh, and was that was the immediate follow-up to right. The Office. Yeah. And the difficult second album. Yes, yeah. But uh, I, I think quite brilliant. And and I thought, uh, um, and that's when I first got to see you performing and you were hilarious. Um, a terrible, terrible agent. That's right, yes. <laughs> Just really the worst agent in, uh, in the history of the world. Yeah. And, um, and very thick about everything, but mm-hmm. but uh, and you're looking at me right now, <laughs> the way you would look, <laughs> right? Well, at Ricky's character, which is quite you're 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 quite certain you're doing just fine. I, there was the idea of, of someone who is utterly hopeless but incredibly enthusiastic. Yes, yeah. Um, and we always imagined that he'd had his business cards printed in like a motorway service station, <laughs> you know, like sort of <laughs> we can get like a hundred for ten pounds, right, on the way to a business meeting and. You you know, slough. And, um, and, uh, but he also probably had a part-time job as well. He was an agent by sort of, he was an agent in the week and then worked in a, in a, in a cell phone store at the weekends. And uh, like, who could be the worst person to have as an agent? You got to work with David Bowie. Yes. In a, in a famous episode of Extras. Yes. Uh, and the, the nature of the work was, uh, you guys actually had to come up with a song that David Bowie writes for Ricky's character. We, R- writes about he sees Ricky in a in a bar, I think, and starts to 
write a song about him. Ricky and I actually have in the sort of music publishing world a song co-written with David Bowie. That's oh amazing. Bowie? That's amazing. Bowie? Bowie. Bowie. Yeah, I'm still nervous about when I have to say that, you know. Quick, cut around that. Uh, I don't want to embarrass myself in front of the, the, the Bowie He's fans. a pretty well-known uh, singer. Uh, and I've met him, which is also <laughs> And you wrote a song with him. But, um, this Bowie. Yeah. Uh, this, is it David? No, David. <laughs> but we, um, yeah, but we, we wrote these lyrics and then we sort of sent them off to David Bowie. And then he came back on the day and he'd sort of took us into a room and there was a piano and he played us the tune. And it's sort of, extra- it was absolutely extraordinary. What is it? Funny little fat man? Funny, funny little loser. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and he's supposed to be sort of composing, as you say, sort of spontaneously. Yeah. But, um, and it was, I mean, it was funny, it was, it, Ricky had said to him, he said, what musically, how would you want it to be? And, and Ricky said, Ricky said something like, uh, oh, if he could sort of be like, you know, like heroes. And, 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 and David, David Bowie himself said, oh, I'll just write another hero, shall sure, I? Sure. <laughs> Give me one of those, would yes, you? Yes. Um, you know that song you did that will endure for all time? <laughs> right. Another one, please. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's funny because when you meet someone like that, and obviously you've done it throughout your career, there's a feeling that I've got this one opportunity to like fully absorb their genius, their uh, their majesty, their just every, and of course you can't because you're with them for you know for a limited amount of time. And what can you possibly do to fully understand? But it's like oh, this is my chance to understand where his genius comes from. And and you, I, but you can't. So you end up just. Talk, I mean, oddly enough, I remember talking with David Bowie about reality TV that just showed like Big yeah. Brother or some show that was on the night before. I'm thinking it's, this is a missed opportunity here, isn't it? <laughs> you know, what, it, what can you do? He, uh, I had the great pleasure of David Bowie came on our show a number of times and he was very funny. One of the highlights of my life was meeting him, but I always realized there's no way I can convey to this man right. what he means to me. And I've had that experience with McCartney and, and, and Bowie, Elvis Costello, where I'm, I find myself chatting with them. There's nothing I can right. do. It's a frustrating feeling to, because they've heard it all. Yeah. You know what I mean? They've heard, yes, yes. I mean the world to you. <laughs> I, I, and music I, changed your life, but it's a longer story. I don't have time to explain the whole thing. But I ended up once at a party at Mick Jagger's house mm-hmm. that I did not know I was going to. I showed up at a door, and uh, Mick Jagger opened. I was going to a Thanksgiving dinner that my friend said, "Do you want to come to this Thanksgiving dinner?" She neglected to mention it was at Mick Jagger's. Well, that's, house. first of all, okay. that's a mistake. That's, ter- yeah. that's not a good friend. It's a, no, it's, anyway, so um, we were there, and it's all it was a very interesting evening. But on the at the end of the evening, he was suffering from jet lag because he'd just come back from the states, so he was the. the the party sort of wrapped up a little early and we were waiting for cars and cabs and things. And I found myself stood at the door with Mick Jagger, just me and Mick. And I was like, this is the moment. This is like, I'm here with him now. I can ask him anything about the writing of Exile on Main Street. Yeah. You know, anything. And my only question was, um, oh, jet lag. Yeah, jet lag. <laughs> Have you um, found any way to, to combat jet lag? And that was the end of it. That was it. That was my chance to ask him anything. <laughs> so um, You cracked it. I got- yeah. I blame your friend who uh, didn't tell you ahead yeah. of time. I was in a car once a uh, number of years ago with somebody, and we were on our way to a baseball game. And uh, this person uh, said, um, we're going to stop off. There was a driver, and I was sitting in the front seat, and this person was sitting in the back. So he says, we're going to pick up a friend along the way. So uh, I say, fine, no problem. We drive along. Uh, we stop. Jack Nicholson. Wow. Oh. oh my goodness. And Jack Nicholson gets in the car and I was enraged. Of course. 
because I'm not a fan. Oh, no, sure. <laughs> and this is taking time. We might be late for the ball game now. Oh, that's right. No. Did I take the wrong tact here? Yeah. Oh, okay, no, no I was just, I was just mad that I didn't. <laughs> yeah. So what... What did you get any sense of? Because that's the thing, isn't it? You somehow want to understand the he, essence of them. What I understood was he was very uh, highly intelligent, and he knew how to be a movie star. Yeah, and yeah. I've never been more anonymous in my life. I'd been doing the late night show for about ten years at that point, and we walked into this uh, Yankee game, and I I was walking behind him. Nobody saw me. Yeah, yeah. I was completely anonymous. If you want to be invisible, walk within five feet of Jack Nicholson. And um, but he was absolutely great. He was fantastic, and kind of in this old, like almost Humphrey Bogart way, knew how to be a big star. Yeah, had been a big star for so long, and kind of handled it with ease and panache. But I'm interested in that as well because so you because you've met a myriad of very famous people, many of whom I'm sure you are deeply respectful of. So when you're meeting someone socially, even before you were well known. Did did, did you always have a self-confidence about meeting someone? Did you ever find yourself tongue-tied or awkward or, or in You know, awe? it's odd, and I'd say it's, uh, the better answer would be like, oh, I'd be so tongue-tied. <clears throat> and the truth is that I wasn't. Yeah. Uh, even when I was very young and working at SNL and uh, very famous people would come in the room, <laughs> I don't know why. I was very comfortable screwing around with them pretty really? quickly. Yeah. And I don't know why. But uh, arrogance is it sheer arrogance? I think it's arrogance. <laughs> I think uh, it's a little bit of uh, sociopathy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, but was it also that you did you were you not in, were you not impressed by something? Oh or, or, God, or not no! I was very much. I was very. I mean, I can. I remember exactly where I was standing when I was first told go into that room and pitch. Uh, Steve Martin, an idea. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a 24-year-old vagabond, um, and he's uh, the greatest uh, comedian who changed my life. Because I always get still slightly, I think there's an anxiety about, I don't know, saying the wrong thing somehow. I, I was at, a, you mentioned Paul McCartney, and I was at an event it was an Oscars event that I wasn't, I just somehow again wound up at this party again. Someone said, Someone said, come to this party. We're going we won't to tell you anything about it. Was it, it. always Thanksgiving? <laughs> I'm going to a yeah. Thanksgiving party. Oh, it's the Oscars. No, it was It was like, um, it was for a movie that must have been nominated and I was there, some friend of a friend of a friend. Anyway, I'm there. And like, as you mentioned before, I'm six foot seven and so tend to be, you know, you know, a foot and a half or whatever, much mm -hmm. like you, a, a, above everybody else. So yep. I tend to be seen and can see the rest of the party. And I saw Paul McCartney uh, walking around the, the room and our eyes met. And at the time, my show Hello Ladies, which was about dating, was yes. on. And he, and he saw me and he kind of went, uh, and he came towards me. And I was with my friend Danny. I thought, Christ, is Paul McCartney coming? He's coming over. What are we going to talk about? He's fucking Paul McCartney, for Christ's sake. And I was sweating. I was just sort of, what am I going to say to Paul McCartney? He's like, again. And he came over and um, and he said, uh, oh, hello, Stephen. Uh, uh, looking for the ladies? As I, <laughs> I said, always, Sir Paul, always, yeah. And he was yeah. with his wife. And I was, oh, I was thinking, and it was a bit noisy as well. So it's yeah. like hard to hear. And, um, and we just sort of, it sort of went quiet. I thought, is it my turn? Do I say something now? <laughs> and um, and, uh, and he said, oh, it's, it's, it must be difficult, you know, being that. So I, I spotted you from across the room, you know. And I, and I remembered this story, which I told in the past about when I was at uh, a New Year's event once. It was Trafalgar Square. And at Trafalgar Square, like Times Square, at New Year, there are thousands of people there. They all gather and it gets very kind of packed. And I was there and um, was coming up to midnight and uh, two women came over to me and they said, uh, are you going to be here for a while? And I said, uh, oh, Yes, I am. I thought, here we go. They've, they've spotted Steve. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, yeah, I am going to be here for a while. They went, great, because my friends and I have, a re have, have arranged to meet back at you. 
And, and I swear to God, at about two minutes past midnight, the girls came back and a bunch of friends and they started gathering around me. Oh my God. Like a, like a, You're a lamppost. You're a lamppost. This is Trafalgar Square that has Nelson's Column, another well-known yes. landmark. Yes. But they felt I was the obvious one. Anyway, so they all came back and I thought, well, they're at least going to invite me to a party or some such. No, they just drifted off into the night. Anyway, I told... Sir Paul, this story, but again, the music's a little loud, and I'm thinking, and it's quite, it's quite complicated. And, he's, and anyway, I finish the story, and it just goes quiet. I'm thinking, I fucked it here, I fucked it, I fucked it. And he said, and he, then he started laughing. And I thought, oh, thank God, and he laughed, and he was nice and hearty. And anyway, he said, um, anyway, better mingle. And off he went, and I thought that was the best it could have gone. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> he came over, I told him a funny story, he left, that was it. You know, and I was just so relieved. But if he this really icon. liked it, he wouldn't have said better Ming. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Why are you ruining well, this think, for him? I think Paul thought it was fine. Oh, God. I don't have to come, Sir Paul. I'm, 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 a, I'm an American and a proud American. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's the quick, the quick better mingle. You know, that's, that would have me worried. <laughs> I've always thought it went well. But no, you're no, no, right. No, no. You put it in perspective again. No, no, no. Trust me. Better mingle was my catchphrase. Uh, I've talked to Paul about this. <laughs> Do you ever use Battle Mingle? Um, I heard a great one once, which was, um, uh, we did a charity thing and Bono, my old dear friend with the hat, Bono, was there. Anyway, he, I, my, friends were, uh, my friends were having a baby and they're big U2 fans. And I said, and I very rarely do this, but I said, would you sign this card for my friends? They're having a baby. They're huge fans. And he's very sweet. And he wrote a little message and he, and he gave me the card. He was very nice to him. And now I said, I said uh, okay, well, uh, see you later. And he went, see you down the road. <laughs> and I thought, what a clever line, because I bet there's a lot of people that want to hang out with Bono. So if they say, see you later, and he goes, see you later, they could go, well, when? Let's yeah, get the exactly, diaries out and exactly. start thrashing out some dates. And he can say, see you down but the But see road. you down the road is like, I look forward to our next acquaintanceship, but I'm not going to make any plans. It's also a little ominous. <laughs> I'll see you down the road. <laughs> Well, if you say it in that voice, it's obvious, yeah. yeah. I suppose if you say, no, there are plenty of things I could say in that voice that wouldn't say, have a cookie. No, that's creepy. Yeah, this could be something in the Better cookie. Better mingle. <laughs> it's also terrifying. <laughs> Did Paul's face go completely flat when he went, better mingle? <laughs> then you realize, uh, I want to make sure that I talk uh, to you about your new program, which I'm really enjoying, called The Outlaws, because this is a show that you, you wrote this show, uh, you're in the show and you direct the show. Is that correct? I directed three of the first six episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, terrific cast. And then I don't know how you did this. You have Christopher Walken yeah. in this, who's brilliant, by the way, and hilarious in the show, playing this fantastic character. I don't know how you snagged him. I mean, yes, you're you're Stephen Merchant, but that's still, that's quite a get. It is a get. And um, he doesn't, as you may know, have a cell phone or a computer, and he's quite hard to get in touch with. And I think somehow we we uh, faxed him the script, old school, and he read it. And he asked me to come up to Connecticut, where he lives, to have a meeting. And, you know, we've already exp explained my nervousness around meeting big stars. So I right. kind of am approaching the house, um, and he's got this sort of house, and it's sort of in the middle of this sort of wooded area. And I was quite intimidated. I was like, who's going to open the door? It's either going to be Christopher Walken or, or the Unabomber. You know, I was like quite sort of nervous. Yeah, yeah. And open the door and it's Christopher Walken, you know, and, and I, I wish I could do an impression of him. But the first thing he said to me was, um, would you like some of this omelette? <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I said, uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I, and, you put the spaces in the correct. You don't need to do the impression if you 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 spaced it correctly. Can you can you do an impression? I don't think I can. You know, would you? I it, I don't. I, it's I'm hard, not even isn't it? Try. It's harder. It's harder. Hard, and you have to have. I mean, uh, uh, Jay Moore does the best uh, Christopher Walken I've ever heard. Uh, but my God, it's such a specific Very impression. Specific. And also, it's the rising and falling in the yes, wrong places that's right. that's right. that, that <laughs> makes him. <laughs> well, so so I go in and I have some of his very fluffy omelets. You like an uh, yeah. yeah, and we sit there and uh, there's no one else in the house and we and we sit there and um, someone had told me beforehand uh, Christopher is very comfortable with silence. And it's because he's a very thoughtful man, very sort of uh, contemplative. And so he would ask me a question about the show and I would answer and he'd just go quiet. Just sort of look out the window. And then he asked me something else and I'd answer and he'd go quiet. And um, my, it was like having a Zoom conversation in person. Yes. You know what I mean? There was like, a lag. Yeah, there was a lag. I never, I wasn't quite sure if he was thinking or buffering. And, um, and I was there, I was there three and a half hours. By hour three, I was so weak from hunger. I said, any of that omelette left? And... And he, but he had so many questions and they were really, they were really kind of perceptive about the script and about the character and about people he knew that were like the character. And I'm, I think he was just sort of getting to know me and, and thinking, do I trust this guy? And does he have the answers to my questions? And, and by the end of it, I felt like a real kind of connection with him and an affinity with him. And then miraculously, he came to the UK to, to, to shoot the show. And what's nice is you're shooting this in Bristol. It takes place in Bristol, which is your hometown. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would think you're running into people you grew up with who'd love to play an extra, who'd well, love to be on the show, you know? Well, the funny thing is that, the, so the show is about people doing community service. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, my parents were involved with community service uh, in Bristol. Um, they uh, um, supervised the offenders. They themselves weren't criminals. I mean, they did, I think, a couple of bank heists. We all know. <laughs> and, yeah, we all know what they After did. that, they went straight. But um, my mom used to have people coming through the ranks that I went to school with. So there was one kid called Dave, who was the world's laziest thief, who would always be coming back through. And my mom would be like, what have you done this time, Dave? And he's like, well, um, I, I broke into a house um, and I was stealing the TV and the homeowners came back. And they said, what are you doing, Dave? And I said, I'm not Dave. And they went, yeah, you are. You live next door. Oh. And he's like, the, he's like literally just gone into <laughs> his neighbor's house. He didn't want to walk a block, like a block over. over. <laughs> <laughs> and so my mom would tell me about like people like Dave or about these other people that would come through the doors. And I just thought, what an interesting backdrop for a story. And then ironically, when I was shooting the show, I went for dinner in Bristol's fanciest restaurant and I only got a reservation because I'm on TV and who was in there having a meal with his family? Fucking Dave! Uh, <laughs> I was like, how did he get a fucking reservation? And on the way out, I said to the maitre d', you better count the cutlery on the way out because this guy, <laughs> I was, I, I, I had the last laugh. But that must be nice to go back to your hometown and 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 make a show. Yeah, it, but I thought there'd be a ticker tape parade when I got back. So there was nothing. I think it's because there was COVID. That's the only reason I could assume that there was no ticker tape parade. But um, but it was no, it was nice. It was just we were shooting in COVID, and it was very tough to. So you didn't really get to socialize or to go out or to visit restaurants or to see people you knew. It was sort of frustrating in a way. Um, and just you just lived in constant fear that you know seventy eight year old Christopher Walken was going to get COVID on your watch. Yeah, and you're just like sweating. It's it's like your my my main character is going to. It's like being in Squid Game. You, know, you never know who's going to go next, you know. So um, your Squid Game, your Squid Game is is making a television show with Christopher Walken That's right. That's right. in Bristol. It's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. What's your do, now? Do you have a, a proper size writers' room, or is this a UK writers' room of like two of you? There was about. Five of us, that's five or six of us. So it's not bad. Quite, yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty good for England. 
Yeah, pretty sizable for England. Has it changed much, uh, the, the TV writing industry in Britain? Has it become more in the Hollywood mold or is it still, uh, there's there's less money in it? It's well, there's, more- there's a lot less money, but there is increasingly partnerships, I think, with people like Amazon. So this originated with the BBC yes. and then and then became a co-production with, with Amazon. And so I think there's now a lot of things with Netflix and the BBC or other. So there's, I think, a little bit more money coming in that um, that that helps, but I worry that it's going to sort of, that you're going to get these demands. Not that we had it with this, but you're going to get demands about sort of kind of ironing out the regional specific, specifics. Do you know what I mean? So that we're going to be British, but sort of referring to to our dear beloved President Biden. <laughs> you know what I mean? An effort to appeal I did, to... I did find that to be a very odd episode. <laughs> that <was an> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting thing as TV becomes really global. Yeah, I mean, right. it is global now. It used to be uh, the Pythons weren't worried about. That's it. Uh, anything other than let's just hope uh, we get to to do another. I'm sure, someone season. told me someone told me about that show, Sex Education, that's made in the UK, but apparently they've sort of been encouraged to make it quite. So it's sort of a portrait of a school, but it it has lockers and elements that don't seem as familiar to British people as they would to Americans. Oh. You know, it's a kind of almost feels like an American high school in England. Oh, right, what? right. I haven't it's, seen it, so I don't want to disrespect oh, the show. No, 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 I'm not. I'm, I'm just. I, I do. I do think that there's going to be more and more economic pressure for everyone's shows. I mean, they're, they're, look at how it's changed the movie industry. If you're looking at The Fast and the Furious, there people are, will line up and, and go see it anywhere. It doesn't yeah. matter. You don't even have to speak English. Right. You don't have to know what the dialogue is to like these fast cars and <laughs> yes. Vin Diesel grimacing. That's right, yeah. Yeah, by the way, I thought the last Fast and Furious was absolutely fantastic. I took my son to see that because I said, you need to understand the Fast and the Furious franchise. And so I drove him to a theater Watched it, and afterwards he said, "I understand now. I understand." <laughs> In a good way, or was he pro? Or well, anti? he's like me. I'm not going to say I'm pro. They, they, they. Surely, they, the filmmakers know that this is silly and. Fun I think the filmmakers joyous. know that. I think some of the people involved may not know that. That's not my concern. <laughs> I'm just enjoying it. I'm just sat there in the audience having a whale of a time. I go. I want you to walk up to Vin Diesel and say, "I just love what a silly, ironic romp." <laughs> See how that goes over. I'll tell you how that's going to go over. Um, well, listen. This has been. I. I truly. You're on my short list of uh, Stephen of people that I've just been delighted to talk to. Because thank you so much. No, seriously. It's I, been a real I, pleasure. I, I'm I, such a fan. I'm. I'm love. Uh, I love your work. And uh, your ethos, and I like the way you have uh, presented yourself comedically to the world, and I'm a big fan. So thanks for doing this. Thank you so much, and I feel the same way about you. So it's a real honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you, guys. Oh, good. So you've amending your how you began with the whole Conan O'Brien feel uh, overqualified. Do you know what? what? I genuinely, I don't mean this in a way that is sort of um, self-pitying. I've never, I've always assumed people don't need me as a friend. I don't have a, it's not a lack of, it's not sort of an insecurity. I just think people can survive without me. They don't need me in their life. I've always felt that way. I agree with you 100%. I feel um, that I might be a nice bonus, Yeah, but that I'm not crucial. I'm a seat filler. Yeah, oh, if you if you on. need someone, if yes. I'm, I'm no. a perfect, I'm a great dinner no, no, no. guest. This is how we feel about ourselves. I'm not yeah. saying it's true. I mean, oh, in Stephen's case, it may be. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, look, uh, I can't help Stephen with his problems. 
I just tried to relate to him, but no, I don't feel that way at all. I think I'm absolutely essential. And I think a world without me is not a world. I think the minute I die, all existence ends. You're just in my imagination, Stephen, and that's why you exist. And on that note, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Conan O'Brien does not need friends. <laughs> I don't need anybody. Screw all of you. You know, it's incredible to have the flexibility to work in all sorts of places, whether it's taking video calls from the park or emailing large files while you're grocery shopping. Sona, this is good for you. Is it? Because you're always doing whatever work you do for me from fun locations. But I like blaming it on not having reception. I know, but you can't do that here. Working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network, which is why you should check out T-Mobile, Sona. Okay. Then you got no excuses. They're America's largest and fastest 5G network. With T-Mobile, you'll be covered in more places with the 5G speed you need for your life on the go. Plus, they also cover more highway miles with 5G than anybody else. Check it out if you don't believe me. Hey, Blay, you've got T-Mobile, right? I do. I was actually just up in the woods in Idlewild. It was fantastic for the weekend. And uh, my T-Mobile didn't miss it. My T-Mobile phone didn't miss it. You know, I wouldn't think you'd need a cell phone because you speak so loudly into a microphone. (laughs) Well, I had to look some stuff up. Just take it. Just take it down. I didn't know what brunch was. I can hear him. When the restaurant's open for brunch. Okay. uh, So I used uh, my T-Mobile coverage to check out brunch. That's all right. Anyway, wherever you are, you know, take it from the loud speaking Blay. If you're on the go, you want to be in the know, you want to make the show. What? Uh, T-Mobile. Okay. That's the one for you. That was I should weird. have rhymed it with go. Anyway, yeah. find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. Fastest based on median overall combined 5G speeds according to analysis by Ookla of Speed Test Intelligence Data Q3 2023. C5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all sometimes have issues or things we need to talk about, get off our chest. I have that all the time, don't you, Sona? I do. Yeah, and we need people to talk to. And we carry around different stressors. We carry big stressors. We carry small stressors. Uh, I was raised in a culture where you're supposed to kind of bottle it up, and I've learned over time that that's not the best thing to do. If you do let things rattle around in there for a while without talking it out, it can affect your life very negatively. Well, therapy is a safe space where you can get things off your chest, figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. BetterHelp's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. A lot of people have a barrier towards getting therapy because they think, well, I don't know, I've got to find the person, talk to them. What if I? it's not a good match? I, then it's awkward. None of that. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Conan today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Conan. Let's do review the reviewers. We haven't done that in a while. It's where I sort of comb through the sometimes blisteringly positive reviews on Mm -hmm. Apple podcasts Uh and find some that are worth mentioning. I do like to know what the people are thinking. 
I don't want anyone. Yeah. No, you don't. I do, I do actually. Okay. I have people approach me on the street all the time and talk to me about the podcast, and I do enjoy that. But this is a chance for me to get outside my little bubble uh, and and find out how people really feel. Well, this one is kind of carrying on a theme that I'm starting to notice or a pattern, and I think we might want to address it. This is similar to one we've had okay. before. The subject is Conan Cool. It's five stars, and it's written by Igdeyit, and it goes like this. Conan and the Chill Chumps are cool, exclamation mark. By the way, I'm 11 and I listen slash watch you, exclamation mark. <laughs> That's like the third 10 or 11-year-old we've had leave a review saying they listen to this show. I want to say that that fills my heart with glee because I've always thought that my target audience was about 11. And uh, <laughs> I think that this is proof that uh, that I'm correct. My whole career, I've always thought there are children out there who completely understand what I'm doing. And, yeah. um, <laughs> yes. you know, for years in my monologue, I'd have jokes and some were better than others, but then I started just playing peekaboo with the camera. I would tell the I would tell the <laughs> cameraman to lock off the camera. And, and early on, the cameraman would follow me if I walked to the right or the left. And I would tell them, don't. Lock it off. Don't move it. I'll walk out of camera and then I'll peek back in. And I would see, you know, 350 people in the audience, all adults laughing really hard when I peeked back in. And I realized that we're all 11-year-olds. We're smaller. We're, we're six-year-olds. We're five-year-olds. The fact that I, by, by leaving the frame and then peeking back in would make people giggle. And I thought, I think inside all of us or most of us, there is that little kid. And so the fact now that actual children are writing in and saying, this uh, show matches my intellectual and emotional capacity perfectly, that makes me very mm. happy. Mm. You know, the show is very visual and this is you saying things. So I I wonder what it is about how you say things or what you say that is appealing to children. <sighs> well, that's a, that's a very valid point. That's true. I can understand why the show, yeah. I would act like a foolish man. Um, what is it now about hearing me? Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if any of you have any insights into why uh, right now I'm speaking. You'd think that that would not make an 11-year-old laugh or a 10-year-old, but I think often in my conversations- um, Do hmm. funny voices. I think I do yeah. some funny voices, but I think maybe they can just tell this man is stunted developmentally. <laughs> yeah. I think that comes across yeah. pretty quickly. I mean, I, I think it doesn't matter who I'm yeah. talking to. We had an interview with uh, Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor not too long ago. And and I did my best to be thoughtful and to hold my own to discuss the great issues of the day. But also I, I showed uh, terrible lapses into foolishness and childishness with some of my questions. And um, Did you hear that she got impeached just for being I, on the podcast? I just, she did. And even, she didn't even fight it. That was the interesting no. thing. They they impeached. She, it's the first. She introduced the yeah, article. The first, it, was the, <laughs> <laughs> it was the first time they've removed a sitting justice and they brought it to her and she said, uh, there's, what can I do? I deserve to go. She <laughs> did the podcast and then just went back and started packing up. Her yeah. <laughs> it was instantaneous. Well, I think what she did is she said, I'm off to do Conan's podcast. Start packing while I'm gone. Career suicide by podcast. Yeah. And then uh, she said to one of the the, the clerks uh, and that nice ceremonial gavel they gave me, this uh, 200 years old that I got when I became McSeam Court 
uh, Justice, you should just put that in the shredder because um, <laughs> I'm off to do Conan O'Brien's podcast. So our biggest response to her appearance was from 10 and 11-year-olds. I, I want to know how an 11-year-old finds their way to this podcast. Is it through their parents or on their own? Well, we do. I've tried to get lots of tie-ins with children's products. Mm, so, yeah. Um, oh. So there's a lot of toys out there. If you go to any toy store, and I know they don't exist anymore. It's all online. So don't get me there. But um, <laughs> most toys now show up um, with a picture of me somewhere on the box that says, as discussed on Conan's, on Uncle Conan's podcast. And these oh. are, these, Uncle yeah, Conan's. these are toys for like three and four-year-olds. Oh. They say, um, be careful, uh, you know, don't, don't leave unattended with, you know, this block. Man. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Please don't go down that road. Um, no, I, uh, I'm doing all, I'm doing what I can to make sure that I get a lot of tie-ins. I do a lot of Nickelodeon appearances. Oh. Um, yeah. My dermatologist- Have you been slimed? I've been slimed so many times. My dermatologist said that it's eating into my bone. They found green slime in my marrow. So I've got to stop that. Um, I toured with the Wiggles for a while when they were uh, making their New Zealand tour. I'm doing everything I can to make sure that I get to very young children so that they grow up thinking Conan O'Brien is- the podcaster. Oh, you're indoctrinating I him. I am indoctrinating him, yes. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Well, then. Why did this kid call us chumps? Yeah, good question. The hell? Yeah, kid. He loves you me, fight? but he thinks you guys are extraneous. <laughs> I think it's because he can tell both of you occasionally lapse into uh, sober thought and reflection. And he knows that I'm the one oh. that will never let him down. The 24-hour clown. <laughs> I just wanted the ending to rhyme. And I did. Yeah. Peace out, eight-year-olds. Mic drop. <laughs> no. Yes, mic drop. Nope, we picked it back up. I grabbed the mic and I dropped it. Mic drop. I put a little net above the floor. Cutting net now. Dropping mic. Mic falls through net. Mic hits floor. Mic drop. Huge magnet on ceiling raises mic back up. Machine I have built by scientists reverses polarity of your magnet. Fires mic into ground. It sticks to ground. Mic drop. <laughs> I'm involved in a nuclear accident in the 1950s and control the gravitational matter in the Earth's core. I travel further back in time than you do. I shoot you when you're 15 years old. I make sure that you cannot reverse the polarity. Mic drop. Mike can never be picked up again. You don't exist. Killed by me when you're 15. <laughs> My ultimate plan comes true. Now I don't have to do this podcast. That was amazing. Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, with Conan O'Brien, Sonam Obsessian, and Matt Gourley. Produced by me, Matt Gourley. Executive produced by Adam Sachs, Joanna Solitaroff, and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Theme song by The White Stripes. Incidental music by Jimmy Vivino. Take it away, Jimmy. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, and our associate talent producer is Jennifer Samples. Engineering by Will Becton. Additional production support by Mars Melnick. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Britt Kahn. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review read on a future episode. Got a question for Conan? Call the Team Coco hotline at 323-451-2821 and leave a message. It, too, could be featured on a future episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Mm -hmm. 
This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. <laughs>